We're in Joshua chapter 8 uh, at the very end. And today's passage, uh, if you were here last week, it um, seems like today's passage is an awkward transition from last week because it was the execution of a king. And, um, but really, what you see is the somewhat of a fitting conclu- conclusion to what started back in Joshua chapter 5. Now, in Joshua chapter 5, when, when Israel crossed over the Jordan, they immediately memorialized a couple different ways God's provision, and then they affirmed their, their participation in God's covenant by doing, taking the marks of the covenant, if you will, through circumcision. And then uh, what we see today um, is very different, a little similar but different in a concluding this whole picture. They went to Jericho, they had victory at Jericho, then they got defeated at Ai, they confessed their sins and they were victorious at Ai, and then they made what amounted to another monument of a pile of stones above uh, the body of this king, and then now they again mark the participation, the covenant, by a public reading of the entire law of Moses in front of all of the people. Now, when they entered Canaan, and Canaan is, is this description of the promised land, basically, Canaanites. So Canaan is a description of all the land um, from the sea all the way to the Jordan, basically, that God has promised them that they would uh, possess. And he had promised Abraham, and he had promised Moses, and he had promised Joshua, reminding them that this is the land they're going to possess. But successfully experiencing that promise had a condition to it, And it was conditioned on basically faithful obedience to everything God says. And in Joshua chapter 1, when it all starts, God tells Joshua, Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people, Israel, to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. It's like, this is it. This is what's going to happen. After 400 some odd years, it's all going to happen now. And he says in verse 7, Only be strong and very courageous, So it's not just be really tough, but being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. That you may have. Okay, it's predicated on that. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then... Again, a condition. For then, if you do this, you will make your way prosperous as you possess the land, and you will then have good success as you possess the land and fulfill the promise I've already said I'm going to give you. So at first, the Israelites do pretty good. They follow God's instructions. They follow God's commandments. They go across the Jordan, and they totally destroy Jericho in an unorthodox way, but it was how God commanded it to happen. And then it seems like after that, they ignored his warnings. Even in the midst of that, Achan in particular ignored his warnings, and they began to believe, at least Achan did, represented all Israel, the promises of sin. And they found out firsthand what happens when you turn to the left or the right of God's way, of what God had commanded. Relationships were destroyed, the community became weak, and people died. It's pretty much what happened. Now, It's difficult, I think, even for us, the sin in us, the sin in me, fights against believing that God's way is actually the way to prosperity and success. Not prosperity in a material way, necessarily, but prosperity and success in just contentment 
that's really what we're talking about. Everyone wants contentment, and they try to find contentment in all things, believing that this, that, and the other thing is going to give them contentment. That's really what the desire is to have. And we believe, at least Achan did, oftentimes, the promises of sin to provide that. And there's a warning that, that I, I guess we should all heed to, where we can fool a lot of people, but we can't fool God. In Galatians, Paul writes something that I think we should be careful to remember, which says, do not be deceived, as in the lies of sin and promises of sin. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. So the question for all of us, obviously, is what are we sowing? What kinds of uh, seeds are we planting? Is the expected harvest that whatever you hope is produced, the fruit that you hope is there, is that fruit rooted in God's word or something else? It's quite simple, I think, for us to see it objectively. Are we, you, Joshua, are they more committed to carefully living according to God's word, both his promises and his warnings, because there's both, or do we find ourselves more committed to the promises of sin? There's where we're at. That's the tension of life right there. And anytime you sin, and I sin, we believe the promises of sin. That's what happens. The question is, what are we committed to pursuing? So even if Israel at this moment isn't committed as maybe they should be, Joshua, their leader, is. And this is where we get to Joshua chapter 8. And he is going to lead his home and his people in that way. And having seen what results from trusting God's promises and heeding God's warnings and not, Joshua today leads basically all of Israel in what amounts to a big worship service of renewal. And it is very much a recommitment to God's word as central, as most important, as authoritative in all life. Now, in placing the covenant renewal, because scholars disagree about this section of scripture as not that it was intended to be there, but where exactly in the narrative it's intended to be. Whether it's a chronological thing or if it's supposed to be more near the end or where it happens. But regardless, the writer put it here, and I believe that he intends to show that obedience to God's word, because they have much more fighting to do, obedience to God's word is more important than fighting God's war. This is in between the two large campaigns that they're going to go. They're going to hit a northern campaign and a southern campaign, just like this beautiful military strategy you'll see. But before they do that, they do this renewal covenant to say, obedience to God's word is more important than actually practically fighting the war. In fact, Israel's future success, and dare I say, you as a man, woman, brother, sister, friend, husband, wife, parent, your future success is not dependent on you knowing how to be a perfect husband, wife, father, mother, employee, all these things, but on your faithfulness to God's word. That's what the most important thing is. Your complete submission to every word of God over and above your feelings, your thoughts, your experiences. God's word is to govern those things. So here we go, Joshua chapter 8, following their defeat of Ai and the execution of the king, verse 30 of Joshua 8 says this. 
At that time, Joshua built an altar to the Lord, the God of Israel, on Mount Ebal, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded the people of Israel, as it is written in the book of the law of Moses, an altar of uncut stones upon which no man has wielded an iron tool. And they offered on it a burnt offering to the Lord and sacrificed peace offerings. And there, in the presence of all the people of Israel, he, Joshua, wrote on the stones a copy of the law of Moses, which he had written. And all Israel, sojourner as well as native-born, with their elders and officers and their judges, stood on the opposite sides of the ark before the Levitical priests who carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord. Half of them in front of Mount Gerizim, and half of them in front of Mount Ebal, just as the Moses, as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded at the first to bless the people of Israel. And afterward, he read all the words of the law, the blessing and the curse, according to all that is written in the book of the law. There was not a word of all that Moses commanded that Joshua did not read before all the assembly of Israel and the women and the little ones, and the sojourners who lived among them. Okay, get this confusing picture clarified. Right after the defeat, or shortly after the defeat Ai, Joshua goes back to Gilgal, where their base of operations are. The warriors had left from there. They go back, they get all the kids and the wives and everybody else, and they march northward, probably about 30 miles, to a city called Shechem. It's in the Jordan Valley, and it rests between two mountains, Ebal and Gerizim. And there is a picture, actually. I think it says Ebal and Gerizim or something like that. Do you see that? That's actually the city of Shechem you can see today. So this is where they went. And those are the two mountains, Ebal and Gerizim. I'm not sure really which one's which because you can get it from two different perspectives. So, uh, But the one that's higher is Ebal, and I, probably the one on the left there. So that's where they travel to. And this area is very important for several reasons. First of all, just geographically, Shechem is in the city or the center of the promised land. Okay, so it's almost the exact center of the promised land. That's why you see a northern campaign and a southern campaign kind of from this point forward. And in many ways, it geographically represents all of the land It's as the center. And Joshua here challenges them to renew the covenant that's the promise for all the land. Now, it's the same place where right before in Joshua 24, Joshua is about to die and to kind of move on from leadership, where he does the exact same thing at Shechem and renews the covenant, says, this is what you're going to do when I die, when I move on, trust God's word, obey God's word, same place. Historically, Shechem is the place where Abraham first received the promise for the land. So, if you look in Genesis chapter 12, and I believe it will be up there, Here's what happened when the first promise was ever given. It says, And Abram took Sarah his wife, and Lot his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan, because that's where God said to go. So they went to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, verse 6, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Moreh. And at that time, the Canaanites were in the land. So the Canaanites are here. They're just as bad as they ever were, but they're not bothering Abram for whatever reason, soon to be Abraham. In verse 7, the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land, as he's sitting at Shechem. Okay? So he built there an altar, just as Israel is going to do today. They built there an altar 
to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country on the east side of Bethel and pitched his tent. Now, the east side of Bethel is right between Bethel and Ai, where Joshua had just put a little, you know, uh, hidden group of people to attack the city. So all these places have been visited before, on the west and, and I on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord, and Abram journeyed on and still going toward the Negev. So he goes to Shechem, builds an altar there, camps out where Joshua has been, very important place historically, okay? And then spiritually. Spiritually, Shechem was the location that Moses had commanded Joshua to worship at when he came into the land. He specifically told him to do this. In Deuteronomy 27, a lot of verses I know, but might as well have more Bible than my mouth. So we go, 27 verse 1 says this, Now Moses and the elders of Israel commanded the people, saying, Keep the whole commandment that I command you today. It's interesting how often Moses, God obviously through Moses, or God through Joshua, or God through many prophets, is always reminding people to keep the whole law. To do everything I told you, because we're very good at doing parts of what God tells us to do. Specifically the parts that we enjoy or easiest for us. Verse 2 says, on, that, on the day, Moses speaking, that you cross over to the Jordan, to the land that the Lord your God is, you shall set up large stones and plaster them with plaster. And you shall write on them all the words of this law when you cross over to enter the land that the Lord your God is giving you, a land flowing with milk and honey, as the Lord God of your fathers has promised you. And when you have crossed over the Jordan, you shall set these stones, concerning which I command you today, on Mount Ebal. So that explains to you why they didn't do it right when they got across the Jordan. They specifically have to do it on this mountain. You shall plaster them with plaster, and there you shall build an altar to the Lord your God, an altar of stones. You shall wield no iron tool on them, which was God's instruction for any altar built to him like that. You shall build an altar to the Lord your God of uncut stones. You shall offer burnt offerings on it to the Lord your God, and you shall sacrifice peace offerings, and you shall eat there, and you shall rejoice, that's important, before the Lord your God, and you shall write on the stones all of the words of this law very plainly. So you can read them, in other words. So, following Moses' command then, Joshua does what he's commanded, or was commanded, what's been written down in the book that he has with him. He knows in the same book, you have the spiritual historical significance from Abraham being there, and that strategically just makes sense. So Joshua organizes what amounts to a huge worship service at this place with thousands of people, all of Israel, and they gather in that place which is like, a, it works like a natural amphitheater today. I mean, it, it, that's the way it's shaped. So the Ark of the Covenant, carried by the Levites, put that picture up of the city again, goes into the middle of the valley and sits there in the middle, and then Israel divides itself between the two mountains. So you have half of Israel on one mountain and half of Israel on the other mountain, and the Ark of the Covenant sitting in the middle with the Levitical priests carrying it and surrounding it. So right before they, they take their positions, though, that they're going to do, they build an altar, and... The first thing that it's built on top of Mount Ebal, the higher of the two peaks, and it's thought that this is actually the exact same location. There's another altar, so it's like altar one, I think, picture. There's the altar actually 
historically, archaeologically, they actually think is Joshua's altar, which is pretty amazing to think about. That you can go there and there's a place that scholars go, well, this is what it dates to, and we think this is probably it. What's even more amazing, if you go to the next picture, underneath this altar, they found another altar that dates back even further, that's much smaller, it's about seven feet across, thinking that it could be Abraham's altar. So they most likely built the altar on the exact same spot that Abraham built his altar 400 years prior to that. That just stinking ridiculously amazing? It should be to you, it is to me, that's okay. So you have this altar there, they build this altar, uncut stones, you can see Joshua's altar because the nation's much bigger, they build a much larger altar above the exact same place that Abraham had built his. And they do it as dictated according to Mosaic law, uncut stones, and then they offer sacrifices as a means of worship to God. And though it's a worship that is structured, okay, it is structured, they're doing certain things, it is intentional, Moses makes the point to say that it's not supposed to be sterile and lack of joy. And let's be honest, we got a problem with that sometimes in our church and other churches as well, right? We come to worship, we are frozen, sterile, praise Jesus, walk away. It's supposed to be joyful. It's supposed to be a thing of rejoicing. Just because you're making these sacrifices, it's not supposed to be routine, although, yes, very structured, yes, very dictated, but it is supposed to be joyful. He commands them to make sacrifices and to be joyful in Deuteronomy 27. But they make two different kinds of sacrifices here. They make a burnt sacrifice and a peace offering or peace sacrifice. The burnt sacrifice is they would go up to the altar and they would take uh, an unblemished male lamb. There was a couple other options they could have. And this was the most common offering that they made in Israel. And they would burn the entire offering. It would be wholly consumed to God. They wouldn't touch anything. They would burn it all day and all night. It would be consumed by the fire. And these Offerings are described in, in the Bible to be aroma for the Lord and basically to atone for the sins of the people and to propitiate or to stop, absorb, however you want to say it, God's wrath. So it was a sin offering fully burned for all the people, okay? So they would each do one. Then they offered fellowship or peace offerings. You can call them either one. The Bible here calls it peace offerings. And it was... Offerings of gratitude to God for his goodness. So these were a little bit different, but they always took place after sins were atoned for. So he never was like, let's peace offerings and then do burnt offerings. Burnt offerings, sins are atoned for. Now let's enjoy the fellowship of God. And so they would have an offering, they would put up a sacrificial animal, and they would burn part of it, and then they would take some of it to eat. So the burnt offering they didn't touch. That was all of God's. But the second offering was intended for them to eat right there as a big party to the Lord, rejoicing for his provision, rejoicing that they have fellowship with him. It was a celebration that they were in relationship with God. It was beautiful. It was supposed to be enjoyed. So they basically do this huge sacrifice, and then they do this offering where they enjoy. And after offering sacrifices, Joshua takes these large stones, covers them in plaster, different stones than the altar, and writes a copy of the law on them. And some people will say, well, scholars disagree. He wrote just the Ten Commandments. Some people say he wrote everything from Deuteronomy 5 to 26, because in 27 he gives the instruction. And you're like, wow, that's a lot of writing, okay? Whatever he wrote, 
We don't know. There are, in Middle East, there are some very large stones, like up to like 8 to 10 feet high, written like that. So it's not unlikely or totally crazy for them to have written all the law. Who knows? But he wrote whatever was God's law or either one of those. And he writes down, it says, every word of whatever he wrote. So the Ten Commandments or the larger representation of the law. Now, this for me is one of the most convicting things in this passage that I studied this week. Because I started asking, like, why the snarf is he writing another copy of the law? I mean, what's, what's the point of that? He has a copy that Moses himself wrote. It's like, well, it must be for the people. Maybe. Maybe. So we're left to wonder why this is commanded. Because Moses commanded it. Joshua does it. Well, as I looked in Scripture, and you read in Deuteronomy chapter 17, the Mosaic law accounts for a, a future king. It does say if you're going to have a king, then there's certain guidelines or certain things the king has to do. And there's one thing the king has to do to begin with. Now, this is not so much that Joshua is king, although if there anyone is leading at this point, Joshua clearly is. But there's something to be learned here about what he tells the primary leader of Israel to do. In Deuteronomy 17, check out what it says. Verse 18 says, And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, so speaking about any king that comes as part of the law, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law, approved by the Levitical priest. So this is what Joshua's doing, though much larger, not a copy. He's writing it down. Everyone's watching. Verse 19, And it shall be with him. So the king is supposed to make his little own copy. The king shall be with him, and he shall read in it all the days of his life. And he may learn that, sorry, he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of his law and these statutes and doing them, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment either to the right hand or to the left. Sounds exactly like God's been telling Joshua. So that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. He and his children. A lot of that's in there. The king is supposed to write for himself a copy of the law. If a man was going to lead, if he was going to meditate, he had to meditate, sorry, on God's law day and night. He had to, if he was going to lead, ensure that the law never departed from his mouth, right? As he had told Joshua, he would have to write down every word and walk around with it wherever he went. Why, we go, why is he doing this? It says, so that he would learn to fear the Lord. So that in doing them, his heart will be protected from being a jerk and prideful with other people. That's what protected him. So that he would be prosperous, both him and his children. The most important thing, the most important thing that someone can do who believes in God is to know his word, period. And share it, and study it, and carry it around. I was convicted because you would believe that as a pastor, I'm immersed in God's word, and maybe more than the average person. But I was convicted by that verse, whatever that means for me, where my mind, my heart, my time 
is not, I would not describe myself like this. Carrying around the Bible all the time, meditating on it, thinking about it. In my younger years, I did that so that I could slam anyone down who disagreed with me. The very opposite of what studying God's Word is supposed to do. Crazy. Not a heart that was set right on knowing God's Word, on actually believing that in God's Word was prosperity and success. Then what he does, according to Deuteronomy 27 again, the curses of the law were read one by one. And you see this in Deuteronomy 27. Moses says, here's what you're going to do. And if you look at 27, he's like, read this curse, read this curse. So what you have, basically of the two tribes over here, one tribe reads all the curses of God, the warnings of God. If you do this, you'll be cursed. If you do this, you'll be cursed. And the other side, according to Moses' instructions of Deuteronomy 27, is for everyone else to say, Amen. You think that's just like something the Christian culture adopted, right? To say amen, right? Amen. We could use a few amens in this church. It's okay, right? So they would say curses, but they also do the blessings. Now we go, okay, I like that. You will be blessed if you obey me. Amen. You will die if you don't. Right? You don't get too many amens on that. Normally we're like, yeah, you're all sinners. We're like, amen. What? That guy thinks he's better than me? No. You're supposed to affirm the promises and the cursings or the warnings of God. In the Talmud, amen, they use it actually as the Jewish Talmud, they say amen is an acronym that means God trustworthy king. God a trustworthy king. And in the New Testament, it's often translated as truly or verily. You'll see Jesus uses amen, the same word, all the time. Although it's not translated amen. To affirm God's word, to affirm God's truth. And so the huge amphitheater makes it possible for everyone to hear the entire law. All the warnings of God, all the promises of God. And in short summary, the declaration all says... You disobey God's word, and you will experience cursing. You obey God's word, and you will experience blessing. And what a crazy, amazing picture. And like I said, we go, yeah, that's awesome. Just sit and hear about the blessings of God, but who would ever sit? That just sounds so fire and brimstone. It just sounds so harsh. Don't we just want, we don't have to talk about the cursings. No, we do. You need both of them. If you're going to fight against the promises of sin, if you're going to fight against the promises of sin, you have to fight for the promises of God and for the warnings of God. At the heart of this approach is this. You identify the lies that you are tempted to believe which cause us to sin. You start to point at them. And then we confront those lies by believing the promises and the warnings of Scripture. And John Piper talks about that in a book uh, called Future Grace, where he argues that the promises and the warnings of God are given to us 
as a means of grace to fight sin. And we prevail as we fight to believe that Jesus is more precious and more satisfying and more thrilling than anything else this world has to offer. Because the promises and the lies of sin will always say you will be happier if this. That's what the Garden of Eden showed. There's something outside of God's word that's better. That's the heart of sin. Something outside of God will make me more happy. And the fight never ends. Think, think about Achan's covetousness, because that's how it started. Achan, the guy that took things in Jericho, ended up bringing death onto his family and, and weakness into the whole community. Okay, before he actually stole, he said, I coveted. Now, sinful coveting, which is the 10th commandment that God commanded, it's the very opposite of, of contentment. You basically see something that you think is going to make you happy that God hasn't given you, and you uh, pursue it because you want it, and it's the loss of contentment that ultimately leads, um, at least loss of contentment in Jesus, that leads us to find satisfaction in all kinds of other things. For some people it's alcohol, for some people it's sex, some people it's just relationships with people, all kinds of things, job, it can be your children, your family. So we, we pursue these things, and at the first sign of covetousness, you need to fight. That's where the fight begins, so that it doesn't become this full-blown manifestation like it did for Achan. Now, how do we do this? Well, you, you meditate on both the promises of God and his warnings. Think about this. If you read the Bible, in terms of covetousness, you will see that God makes promises like, He fully satisfies that his word fills us with joy, that God supplies us everything we need, that true contentment is found in trusting Jesus. Those are the promises of God. That is how you fight against a promise that tells you something different. But God has also given us warnings against covetousness, and it's not just don't covet. It is that things, because that's what we covet, things apart from God, Things are never satisfying. That, that sense of dissatisfaction will always lead us to more things, looking for something else. And that those things will enslave you at some point. And you will begin to devote yourself to those things, invariably destroying relationships, first with God and then everyone else. It's exactly what the Garden of Eden showed. Once the relationship with God was destroyed, the husband's blaming his wife for stuff. Creation is cursed and work is hard. Relationships get destroyed progressively as you begin to devote yourself. So the warnings of God, don't do this. It's going to enslave you. Don't do this. You're going to never be satisfied. You're just going to want something else. Those are the warnings of God that help us to fight against covetousness. Both the promises and the warnings are means of grace. They are a means of grace for our joy and our contentment, ones that we need to feast on constantly. And I think so often we're trying to, just like the king, trying to feed our children, right? Or feed our friends or feed our husband or wife when we've never actually learned to feed and feast ourselves. Your primary responsibility is to feast on God's promises and his warnings, his commands yourself. 
if you don't do that, you will never be able to feed anyone else. You must feast on it constantly. And I love that he says in verse 35, there was not a word of all that Moses commanded that Joshua did not read before all the assembly. So all the people, male, female, young, old, everyone hears God's word and everyone is expected to put God's word as their first priority, even young children. So when you correct your children, when you're training your children, it's less about do this because I said, and it's more about taking them to the promises and the warnings of God, teaching them why it's wrong to covet, why it's even called coveting when your kid says, dude, I want this, 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 and this. Like, let me tell you about coveting, son, and what that is and what's happening and how you have to fight against that because that will never satisfy. Even if I buy you 15,000 Legos, it will never satisfy. You'll always want 15,001, okay? Nothing wrong with wanting Legos, love Legos, okay? Did you get my point, hopefully? So what, what does snarf this mean for us, okay? That's why, like, okay, great. You got guys on top of mountains talking about God's promises and warnings and, and renewing something, their promise, they're renewing their covenant to God. What does this mean? Where, where are we supposed to renew ourselves? So I, I take us to Romans chapter 12, a verse that you probably have heard before, verses 1 and 2. Here's what Paul said. He said, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Sounds awfully lot like Joshua here, okay? As a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal, the renewal of your mind. Something that's happening perpetually. That by testing you may discern what is the will of God and what is good and acceptable and perfect. Transformation. Transformation comes by means of renewing our mind continually. As an act of worship. And you renew your mind. You can't renew your mind. Okay? You can't just, like, reset button and renew your mind. Renewal comes by immersing yourself in God's word, believing in God's promises and God's warnings and God's commands. God's word is the power of transformation. We look to so many other things believing. We all want transformation. Anytime that you're discontent, you want change. You want transformation. But we look to so many different things thinking that that's what will provide it. Even good Christian living books. That was one of my guilty things. Man, I used to read so many theology, Christian living books, and that was one thing I was convicted by this week. How much time do I actually spend reading about the Bible as opposed to the Bible itself? A lot. There's like this new spiritual discipline where people kind of like show their, their you know, righteousness by what authors they know and what books they've read as opposed to just immersing ourselves in God's word because he says that is where you actually are transformed. Nothing else has the power of transformation but God's word. And we're, without renewal like this, what happens is you are naturally conformed to something else. You are naturally taken captive to the lies of culture. The preaching that goes on. And it doesn't mean that everything that's spoken in culture outside of church is evil. 
but it is to say that they will teach you constantly things that are not biblical. Things like the view of suffering. The world has a very different view of suffering and will proclaim, well, suffering isn't deserved, suffering wasn't this, suffering should be something we should always run from. That's not what the Bible says about suffering or success or prosperity. It says a lot about a lot of things. And so the world is constantly preaching you something. And if you don't commit to renewing your mind, you will, according to Colossians 2, be taken captive to believe that. And that will dictate what you do, how you think, and what you say. So how can we renew? Well, here's what I think. A few simple things. And it's modeled after what they did here in the renewal at these mountains. First of all, I believe we commit to gathering in a place. This is a commitment. You could have done many other things, and you could do many other things, but if you think about it, once a week, coming and saying, I'm going to demonstrate my commitment. I'm going to renew my commitment by gathering with the church to worship. Any place. Yes, I know, people who... Where two or three are gathering the name, you know, I can worship God on the golf course in Starbucks. Yeah, that's a bunch of CRAP if you ask me, okay? Because reality, that whole verse is taken in the concept of spiritual discipline, so we'll just kind of throw that out to the side. I understand the spirit of it, great idea, but the reality, there's nothing that can replace the gathering of the church in this experience. Doesn't mean that the Holy Spirit isn't anywhere else. I'm simply saying that it takes intention and commitment to gather as the family in the presence of God to worship like they did. Hebrews 10 encourages people not to neglect gathering as some have, but come together to encourage one another. In what? The promises of God and the warnings of God. That's the gathering of the church. I also believe we need to commit to the sacrifice, not a sacrifice, not even to being sacrificial, although those are very good things. We come and we sacrifice. When we are here, we admit that we are broken, screwed up, jacked up, messed up, undeserving, depraved, broken. That you sinned even when you've been here. Right? Come on! I know some of you have. I talked to some guys, quite frankly... They walk in and are like, oh, I can't believe that girl's wearing that today. Not today, but I've seen that, talk to people about that. We, it's not like you come in here like, good, I'm in a sin-free zone, okay? <laughs> that doesn't happen. We sin, and we come, and we say we are sinful, and we declare and stop trying to pretend like we're perfect, and we go, no, but we know who is. So we commit to the sacrifice of Christ. We commit to accepting what Christ did and pointing to that. That's why I believe their celebration started with sacrifices. That's why we never stop talking about Jesus. That's why we never not take communion. Never not. Oh, so we take, that's right, okay. So we, ne- we always take communion. Why? Because we never want to forget we're broken and in need of confession and cleansing and Jesus provides it always. Then you commit to offerings. Oh, here it comes. Here it comes. 
the pre-Christmas sermon, give me your money. No, I don't think so. But we not only confess that God gave us the most he ever could have, we respond by offering back to him what we have. And that includes a lot more than just your checkbook. But it does include your checkbook. Your gospel work, your service to the body, your use of your gifts, whatever they are, to edify the church, your tithe, your offerings, those are to be laid on the altar and enjoyed by you. That's the beauty of this peace offering, right? It's not just like, well, here you go. Oh, that was such a sacrifice. There's enjoyment in that. There's supposed to be enjoyment in that. I wouldn't preach if I just felt like it was sacrifice. I enjoy being here. I would do this for free. It's what God gifted me and told me to do. I enjoy it. I love it. What is it that God has gifted you to do as well? That is sacrificial. That is an offering, but yet it is something to be enjoyed. And there's some, quite frankly, services that are not going to be enjoyable. But I found yesterday, and I am so grateful for Jim, for Vicky, for Todd, for all the, the um, yeah, for all the uh, high school kids, Marina, Kayla, I forget the others, okay, Donna, there was one more, Kelsey, Candace, okay, yesterday we showed up to, to serve 50 kids, I was not looking forward to it, okay, I'll just be honest, I told Jim I'd help, and he's like, fantastic, now when Jim says that, you're like, uh-oh, he already has, like, a plan for me to help, and I show up, it worked hard, felt like I worked hard, okay, right, I expected to it to be just this full-on sacrifice. This is going to be so terrible. I thoroughly enjoyed every second of it. The kids were awesome. Some of your parents were just doing a phenomenal job. Oh, all the ones that were there, okay? They were just enjoyable. We made it such a mess. That was service. That was sacrifice. It was five-some-odd hours of time. But it was beautiful. It's amazing how many times that you step up and you serve, you think it's going to be painful, it's actually joyful. I guarantee you. So you commit to offerings. And lastly, and maybe more, most importantly, which all those things fall into place, I think, if you do this, you commit to his word. And I was telling somebody before I started today that pretty much my sermons can be summarized in like three things, and they're all the same, which pretty much confess your sin, Love Jesus, read your Bible, and love your family. That's pretty much it, okay? And this is pretty much where we're going here, which is you not only commit to gathering as the family, you don't commit to the sacrifice and leading with the gospel always and commit to offerings, but you commit to his word. More than anything, you commit to his word. Then as a church, we commit to preaching his word boldly, publicly, without compromise, and you are to do that to your children, and that's what we do for your children here. We don't just babysit them. We teach them. Because the little ones can handle gospel truth. We believe that. And we'd love your children to be in here. As soon as you can, get them in here. And we study as individuals His Word, and you meditate on His Word privately, and you memorize His Word. Why? In case you don't have your Bible, you can remember it. And when you need that promise or that warning to fight that lie that's coming, like, better do this, flee from youthful lust and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. Boom. Why? Because I used to fight lust quite a bit. What I do? Put scripture in my brain. 
How does a young man keep his way pure? By living according to my word. I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Why? Boom. Not reading my Bible. There. Implanted. How many of you can quote Nacho Libre quotes, right? Why? Because you've watched it a thousand times. Nothing wrong with Nacho Libre. I love the movie. I love it. We're talking about immersing. Immersing in the Bible. So the Bible is just like pouring out of you the promises and the warnings of God that have power. And you carry it with you wherever you go. And you share his word as a means of grace for yourself and to others. And you teach those who are in your care about his word. That's what the Advent's about. It gives you a reason to take them into scripture. And we never stop until we meet the word, Jesus himself, face to face. So as we close here, consider your commitment. I like that the Bible uses marriage language to describe his commitment to his people. And so you consider these these commitment to Jesus as marriage vows and just ask yourself how you're living out your vows, really. Personally, I have probably recommitted 36 times over 36 years. Okay? I'm going to pray it again just in case. I'm going to recommit every summer camp. Okay? I understand that. But the truth is the renewal of vows is more than just speaking words. It's a commitment to act. And for Israel, it came after they had already confessed and repented. Not before. I'm not calling us to be committed to moral living. I'm not calling us to be committed to making sure you attend church every Sunday, although I think that would be fantastic. I'm not calling everyone to be committed to loving people and loving every neighbor. I'm not calling people to be committed to teaching others and making sure you have every apologetic answer there is. I am asking you to first be committed to God's word, because when you are, the rest takes care of itself. Be committed to God's word as he asks his leaders to be committed. Read verse 19 again about the king, and it shall be with him. Put your own name in there. It shall be with Sam. And Sam shall read it all the days of his life. So that Sam can learn how to fear God. By keeping all his words and his laws and his statutes and doing them. That Sam's heart may not be lifted up above his brothers or his neighbors. Or those he disagreed with. That Sam may not turn aside from the commandment either to the right or the left, so that Sam may continue long in his life, both he and his bride and his kids and his grandkids. I want that. Commitment begins, as it did with Israel, with confessing this, that if you haven't truly committed to God's word like this, confess that. That's sin. Because the reality is you're committed to something. And I firmly believe that when marriages are struggling, when individuals are struggling with job loss, with addiction, with some uh, terrible experience, my first question is always, tell me about how much time you've spent in God's word. It's the first question. You're asking for this transformation, and yet you're not actually accessing that which brings transformation. And so we commit by confessing that we're finding truth in other things, either our own thoughts, 
in other people, in really good books, in Oprah Winfrey or whoever, you are finding some level of instruction in those things. You're trusting your own wisdom, you're trusting your own feelings, your own strength. You're placing your hope and your meaning and your happiness in something other than God's word. It's plain and simple. It begins with confessing that you have not believed the promises of God, that you have ignored his warnings, especially the ones about his word. And you believe the lies of sin, beginning with the one that says joy is outside of the Bible. That's where it starts. And I will just tell you because Jesus said that's a lie. I'll close with this verse and we'll pray. Here's what Jesus said about God's commands. In John 15, 9, he said this. And I'm just asking you to believe Jesus, not me. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. That's where true joy comes from. You may not believe that right now, and I pray the Holy Spirit will convince you otherwise.